So I'm not Thomas, but I'm going to read the scripture for this evening, which is from Acts 17. So if you've got a Bible and you want to open it, um, we're reading from verse 16 of Acts 17. So it's towards the end of the Bible, if you're not sure where you're heading. And if not, it'll be on the screen behind me as well. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Let's pray together as we come to God's word this evening. So Father, we thank you um, for your scripture. We thank you for this story from Acts. And we pray, God, that you would breathe afresh through it to us this evening for Edinburgh, for this great city that you love. And we, uh, we pray that for Thomas, that you would breathe afresh through him, that he'd know your power, your strength, your wisdom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, Hannah. Good evening, everyone. Good evening, everyone. Nice to see you all. Um, yeah, my name's Thomas. If I haven't met of you, really welcome here at Central. Um, it's a real privilege to speak on just an incredible passage. There's so much in there, even as Hannah is reading it. He is not far from any one of us. Just incredible. Like, I'm like, oh, I'm not even mentioning that, but I really wish I was. Um, I'm going to talk about culture a little bit and talk about our role as the church, as disciples, in in how we interact with culture. Um, In many ways, globalization is a really positive thing. It's certainly a convenient thing for those of us in the city centers. Hands up if you appreciate the convenience of having a Costa or a Starbucks at the bottom of your street. 
a few of you. Okay, you appreciate, you appreciate that convenience. Um, and for everyone to have the same apps and milk delivered to your door within half an hour from an Amazon drone, you know. But at its worst, globalization can be seen as kind of an attack on our history, our identities, um, our values, our stories, our cultures. All of it can disappear into this one big mesh of nothingness and nonness as we feel the world get smaller and smaller. If we go way back for a second, back to Genesis, God called us to name the animals. He asked us to be involved in the arranging and the ordering of materials and places and how to get there and asked us to come up with words and arrange colors and atoms and pixels. And the Edinburgh Fringe, what a great example of people putting together thoughts and words and physical objects to come up with inspiring and sometimes quite offensive cultural offerings. And I know this is festival time, so we have maybe a few visitors here tonight. Um, So you may not have been here a couple of weeks ago, but a couple of weeks ago there was a bloke um, called Scott, a good friend of mine. Hi, Scott. And um, Scott talked about... Christianity being weird. He said, why are Christians so weird? And I want to take this opportunity just to thank Scott personally for being such a good example of... um, (laughs) Hey, bit of banter. Um, The medium is the message. Um, But yes, he is right. Christians are very weird at, at points. Do you ever stop and wonder why it is, why we have our own Christian culture, our own way of doing things. Do you ever wonder, is it really supposed to be like this? At Central here at this church, we are the world's worst for this. We have our own lingo for everything. We have our own secret handshakes, special underwear. You know, you name it. In Acts chapter 10, smooth sort of transition there from the, uh, the underwear gag. In Acts chapter 10, the church hits a huge crossroads. So there's a man called Peter who followed Jesus, and he is out on the rooftop, and he has this vision, this encounter with God, where God says to him, the unclean things can now be called clean, and the outsiders who you had nothing to do with before now are now insiders and are part of your family. Acts chapter 15 A little bit later, the church hits this huge junction in their journey. Who is in? Who is out? What do we do about the history of our people? They were at a huge point of self-discovery and revelation in their culture as God's people. Who is church? And what is the point? And 2,000 years later, here we are. There's millions, if not billions, of believers continuing in the way of Jesus Christ. And I think it, it's totally beautiful, really, that throughout history, the same faith that Peter had given to him by Jesus has been adapted, adopted, reconstructed, deconstructed by any tribe, nation, in every era, in every continent. And how is it that this Jesus way is still going? Because By any normal means, it should have fizzled out a few hundred years ago. And just to answer my own question a little bit. Firstly, clearly the Holy Spirit has chosen the church to be the key vessel that he breathed life through and into the world. 
That's why he's brought us here together today. That's the reason that we keep going each day, because God has called us to be his mouthpiece in the world. But as well as that, the Christian faith is something just incredible about what what happened um, on that first day at Pentecost. Because the Christian faith is the most chameleon-like faith that you will ever find. So much more than just a set of ideas. You know, there are an infinite number of, of cultures, subcultures in our world, and following Jesus was never ever supposed to be just another one of those. Where you could just step into like a new club, a different way of thinking. There is no such thing as one Christian culture, thank goodness. No, no such thing as one Christian sound, one Christian design. The story of the cross and its Christ and the spirit are stories that affect and transform existing cultures and have profound impacts on them. The story and power of Jesus challenges and shapes existing cultures. And that is where we come in. That is where we come in. So in the year 1900, there were fewer, I always get that wrong, fewer, less, few. There were fewer than 9 million Christians in Africa in 1900, so 117 years ago. So who wants to hazard a guess at how many confessing believers apparently there are in Africa at the moment? Who wants to hazard a guess? Come on, it's the fringe. <laughs> Get you up on stage here. Anybody? A hundred million, great. Anybody want to raise that? Zach, you look like you're about to say something. 250 million, wrong, wrong. 541 million believers in Africa in the last 100 years, which works out on average at about 33,000 people becoming Christians or being born into Christian families in Africa every single day. China's Christian community, which just had a million members in 1949, has now already become 58 million at least, at the very least, vibrant Christians in that nation. And the funny thing is, thinking about Christianity in, in our context, is that we would go and we would fly out to some of these churches in Africa and China and churches that are seeing fruit and growth and the Holy Spirit move powerfully and we'd be like, hey, this is great, like we're really happy for you, like brilliant that so many people are coming along, getting saved and everything, but you know, meeting in houses, oh, it's not really what you do. You kind of got to have a big church building if you're going to be the real deal, you know. Um, you guys, you need to get yourself some offering bags. And that was a nice little time you had, but I didn't notice any Hillsong in that last worship set. So we brought these CDs with you, and we're going to sing you them and teach you them in English. So don't thank us. It's fine. It's just a privilege to be here. And then you wonder what one of their church leaders would say if they came over here, you know, with our fancy buildings and sound systems and our 20-minute sermons and our weekly meetings with 10 minutes of prayer and and you think would they really cover the faith that we have as a nation as a church and the idea that we've developed in in the west a little bit that we are on the right track and everyone else needs to learn from us and they're not on quite the right track is totally ridiculous and we need to be able to repent i think which is a serious thing 
and start learning from other people about this whole engaging with culture thing. Not just to set up our own Christian culture and and hide away in it. Because the gospel is not just a set of ideas that helps us when we die. It's a flesh and blood story that changes communities, that turns them upside down still today. So we're, we're following Acts 10, we're following Acts 15, and we're in Acts 17, and Paul is in Athens. In fact, Paul is in the middle of being all over the place, taking the gospel to the Gentiles, to the non-Jews, different places, different people every day. And there is one key word that is central to the way that Paul and the way that we live out our faith as disciples, and that word is incarnation. Incarnation. Not incarceration. That's when you go to prison. So just for the podcast, I'm not encouraging anybody to go to prison. I'm encouraging you to think seriously about incarnation. As Hannah read Acts chapter 17, what Paul is doing here is incarnating good news. He's becoming the good news of Jesus. Because that news always stays the same yesterday, today, forever. But how we understand it, how we follow him in different contexts is different. If you're in Athens, if you're in Oxgangs, if you're in Jerusalem, if you're in China. John chapter 1, sadly doesn't get read enough outside of Christmas, says, The Word became flesh. The Word of God became flesh and bones and blood and moved into the neighborhood, is how they put it in the message. Jesus stepped into history and incarnated the God of eternity. Paul, stepping in Jesus' footsteps, we asked to do the same. The purpose of the life of the disciple is to follow Jesus and incarnate good news of Christ. So what we're going to do now is we're just going to take a look at how Paul did this, how he engaged with the world around him. And, And I really want us to not just listen and sort of say, yeah, that makes a bit of sense but consider what it means for you today hopefully this is more than just theory this is really practical Paul's three-step guide for engaging your culture with the good news of Jesus so number one number one is suss out the idols suss out the idols it says while Paul was waiting for them in Athens Verse 16, I think he said, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. But Paul didn't only just want to identify the culture, he wanted to challenge it. It says, verse 22, it says, Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you're very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you're ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I am telling you. So what do the people that you want to reach with the good news of Jesus really care about? What do they spend their lives on? You know, could go on for ages about this, but I'm just going to say quickly, we all bow to idols. And all of our idols very happily shape our lives. They shape who we are. So confronting cultures with good news sometimes involves the awkward thing of pointing out to people what they are really living for. 
whether they know it or whether they don't, sometimes we've got to come alongside them and say, do you really know what you're living for? You might offend them doing that occasionally, but the prize is to communicate this good news. Asking questions like, what do they spend their money on? What do they dream about at night? What does their best life look like? It's probably nothing to do with unknown gods like the Athenians were worshipping. It's probably more to do with hidden gods of realised success, of consumeristic contentment. But it will be different everywhere. It's no use just us sort of saying, well, that's it. You've got to suss out your idols. I've been lucky enough to spend a bit of time in India over the last few years. Um, in, in Edinburgh, it can be really hard to sort of work out, suss out what people are living for, where they're looking for satisfaction, who their idols are. In India, in a lot of Hindu families, all you have to do is just walk into a house and you'll just see it there, a monkey with 12 hands or a big elephant kind of just staring at you and you're like, oh, okay, idol worship. And it's easy to call that out and say, that statue there is never going to bring you satisfaction. That is just a thing. But it's harder for us to really do the hard work of saying to our friends, what and who are you living for? So firstly, suss out the idols. Second, find the places and the people. Suss out. Suss out's better. Let's go with that. So when we move to a new place, what are you looking to discover about that new place? Maybe some of you here in Edinburgh for the first time, maybe you've lived here for a while, when you move to a new place, people often just look for two things. Firstly, where is the best coffee shop that I can find? Where will I get my best pour over to start my day just right? That's one type of person. There's another type of person, maybe a little bit more like me, who does the best kebabs? I need to know. You need to tell me. Paul had a different approach. Paul wanted to confront the culture with the good news of Jesus. So he quickly identified the key spots and the key people to talk to. And you think he was everywhere. He was moving around at breakneck speed. And he was led by the Holy Spirit into the right spots. He reasoned in the synagogue, firstly it says... He spoke with those who were Jewish. He did that in every city. And then next it says that he went to the Areopagus, or this place called Mars Hill, which in Athens was the cultural and the intellectual center of the ancient world. Hannah read it. It says that they just used to sit and chat about ideas all day long. For some of you, you'd love that. For some of you, you'd absolutely hate that. The the Apostle Paul was then asked to speak there on this strange new teaching, this philosophy that he had about this man who apparently was dead called Jesus and about this idea of resurrection. And Paul spoke with this great passion and intellect and he made an appeal for the gospel tailored to his spiritual but intellectually sceptical audience. He knew exactly who he was speaking to. And so much of our culture has not given up on spirituality. And I think it's changing. I think it's shifting from 10 years ago, from 15 years ago. But they have given up, I think, if we're honest, on the irrelevant way that God has been presented to them 
in their lives. In the few places maybe where they've interacted with any talk of God, of Jesus, maybe in their school, maybe on TV, it's meant nothing to them and they don't want anything to do with it. And the point of this from Paul isn't that we're all supposed to rush from here into Princess Street, into George Square, find a plinth as quickly as we can. Maybe some of you want to do this. This is, this is fine. Um, and do this talk on apologetics and what it means to know God. The point is to learn the culture that you are part of. Learn the language and incarnate good news in that place. That is our task and our challenge and our mission as the disciples of Jesus. What does that look like for you today, tomorrow morning? What's that going to look like for you? Is it your local pub? Is it the parliament? Where is it for you? That's what I love about missional communities here at Central. There's no more cookie-cutter Christianity. Instead, it's leaders listening to God for themselves, following the prompting of the Holy Spirit, being themselves, being comfortable in their own skin, and expressing their faith by working for good in the city. It is a beautiful thing. It, it looks different in all of your lives. And, um, yeah, this sad news here is my, um, my last time up at the front here at Central for a while, I think, so... Yeah. Some people thinking, yes, he's quite monotonous, and why hasn't he still done anything about those eyebrows? <laughs> and after being here for um, every Sunday night for about 12 years, every single week, um, in the evenings, leading worship, making some amazing friends, um, my wife and I, um, and an incredible little team of us are off to West Edinburgh, just down the road, to replant into a community that really needs the good news that Jesus is alive. That's why we're there. And we are halfway through, um, well, finishing off this thing called a community audit, which sounds very scientific and very sort of bland and cold and boring. But it is very simply just trying to understand the place that we are trying to reach Because what's the point in just launching in there with both feet and offending people, or even worse than offending people, just being completely irrelevant to what goes on in that culture? We're learning from housing officers, from healthcare, education professionals. What does it feel like to live in Stenhouse? Where are the places of influence? Where does the action happen? And and where is God leading us um, to be his good news? Cookie-cutter Christianity is where we kind of just assume that if we do maybe an alpha course, maybe you do a kids group, and we have a drummer in the band, whoa, then there'll be revival within about 11 or 12 weeks. And that might have been an acceptable idea maybe 20 years ago when that kind of did work in a lot of places. But the problem we have today is that we know too much. We don't want to get stuck in that mindset of just rolling out programs because it's lazy and it's boring. It's not exciting after a while. We want to be people, disciples that accept the challenge of understanding the cultures that we live in. 
And it's time to get serious about reaching the culture of Scotland, of Edinburgh, of the place that you live in, the place that you work, the place that you spend all of your time in, that know nothing of Jesus. So firstly, we suss out the idols. Secondly, we suss out the places, the people. And thirdly, we enter into conversation. So verse 17, Paul reasoned in the synagogue. Verse 22, Paul stood up in the meeting and spoke. He actually said something about the faith that he had in Jesus. He actually said something. He didn't just sit behind a laptop or a phone and quietly form an opinion that he kept himself to himself. He also didn't set up a fake account on Twitter with an egg for a picture and tell everybody that they were wrong about everything. He entered into conversation with people. And do you not think our generation is in serious danger of losing the art of healthy, respectful conversation and debate? Because we're all worried about offending one another in fear of saying the wrong thing. You just sit over there on the right. I'll sit here over on the left and we'll maybe see you at a wedding. But at that wedding, the Brexit people and the Remain people will be at separate tables and we'll only encounter each other on the dance floor. I don't know where I'm going with this. <laughs> if we are going to incarnate the gospel in our culture, we need to be able to build relationship with people. It sounds so blindingly obvious, but so many of us do not do it. We find it really hard to speak up and really own the faith that we have. Verse 17, Paul spoke to the Epicureans. There's nothing particularly fancy about the Epicureans. They were the atheists of their day. They kind of said, maybe there's a God, maybe there's lots of gods, maybe there's nothing. But to be honest, whatever's out there, it's so far away, it's so irrelevant, it's so distant, that we've just got to get on and enjoy life. We've got to make the most of what is in front of us. Maybe you, you know people like that. I know a lot of people like that. Maybe there's a God... Paul spoke to the Stoics, and they were kind of pantheists. They, they were kind of like, God was in everything, God was everything, but God was also kind of nothing at all at the same time. Let's just chill out. There's a kind of duty of, of moral code and respect that we should abide by. As far as that, who cares? Paul met them where they were at. He said, Do you know what? There's a lot of things that you are latching onto that are really smart. And he would have said to them, you are really close in a few places as well. But the truth is better than even you guys have imagined. He was called a babbler by these people. He wasn't always well received and neither will we be. Um, But actually there was a breakthrough in verse 32 after he gave this presentation that he stood up, spoke about Jesus, spoke about the resurrection of the dead, and a few people said, we want to come back and hear more. We want to go on a second date. We want to come back for week two of the Alpha course. We want to go out for a coffee, and we don't just want to hear you speak at us. We want to have a conversation with you, because there's something we've seen in you, something we've seen about you that we want to latch on to. But guys, this takes time, doesn't it? 
It does not happen when you hand somebody maybe just a flyer that's kind of like the grim reaper looking over the shoulder that says, don't, you don't want to go to hell, do you? Do you? We've got to do a better job of being good news in our culture than the same old stuff. And speaking up means processing the difference that Jesus has made in your life. It means really stopping and saying, the faith that I have, would I want to give that to somebody else? The way that Jesus has completely transformed my life, can I speak about that confidently, comfortably? I'm not saying it's going to be easy every time, especially not the first few times. But you don't have to be a crazy person to have a conversation with somebody about Jesus. You just have to really care about them. You just have to really want the best for them. Because that's what we believe, that there's nothing better than relationship with God. Paul says, people of Athens, I see you are religious people. And he preaches this stunning message. Take time later to read through it and really digest it properly. He says, you can't even describe the things that you profess to worship. What's up with that? He says, what's the point in worshipping this unknown God, these idols that I see everywhere in your temples, when the God who made everything, the world and everything in it, and he's the Lord of heaven and earth, and he has revealed himself in his son Jesus Christ, where you can actually know him. On one hand, you've got idol worship to an unknown God. On the other hand, you've got relationship with the creator of everything. You've got unsearchable wisdom and love that he wants to make known to you. So Paul affirms the good that he sees. He says, there's a lot that you say that makes sense, but he also challenges it and he calls it into more. And he calls it out of the godless, meaningless, lifeless idol worship that it is stuck in. Paul said to the atheists and to the hedonists exactly what he had said to the Jews. You're not that far off. That last verse that Hannah read, verse 28, your poets have identified that we are all God's children. Yes, but just not like that. We are the actual children of God. We're not just the children of a golden idol. We are actually the children of the living God and we have a father and he knows us each by name but he also calls us to repentance. And Paul says you've tried to put God in this box. You've tried to control God in this way. You've tried to make God out of your own image in these five, six ways but it isn't going to work because Jesus is bigger and Jesus is better. So much of our searching in life is looking for true satisfaction. So many of our friends, that's really genuinely, authentically what they are searching for. Jesus is better than any solution that they have found. That's offensive, isn't it? That is offensive. That's not always comfortable to bring that. But how do we tell our culture that the longing they're searching for in the pursuit of their idols 
is a God who in Jesus Christ is so compelling that without anything other than just himself, he can meet us and overflow the deepest desires of our soul. That's the challenge. And it's hard work. That's where we need to speak with one another, speak with the world. We are not called to hide away and just wait until we die. But that can be the temptation. To, to build our own culture, to create our own languages and our own buildings and our own everything so that we somehow just become so isolated from the world that what Paul did in Athens just seems completely unattainable. It isn't. And just to finish, being a Christian is not just accepting a new belief system and becoming part of a different culture and then staying in it until there's nothing else. It's following Jesus every day through the thick and through the thin. It's life to the full in the now and it's giving your life to let the world know that Jesus is Lord. Because he is. So who are the people that God has broken your heart for? How can we bring good news into the spaces that we live in? And how can we, even better than that, disciple the people around us into the, the patterns of a Jesus lifestyle? It's time for us, as the people of God, to surrender our wills and turn away from our idols that preoccupy us a lot of our lives because there isn't any center ground there's no middle ground as a disciple because we are in the world but not of the world we bring challenge to the world but we bring good news to the world God is love and we're called to incarnate this message of hope and this message of restoration His kingdom is near and one day everything is going to be okay.